The first cut on this record has been cross-format focused for airplay success. The men beat on their drums. Welcome to another episode of Politics Theory Other, a podcast from Tribune magazine. My name is Alex Doherty and my guest today is Dorit Geber. We talked about the recent re-election victory of Viktor Orban in Hungary and Dorit's article, Orban's Auto-Nationalism as Post-Neoliberal Hegemony, which is published in the journal Theory, Culture and Society. We discussed why Orban secured such a convincing electoral victory in spite of the opposition's highlighting of government corruption and Orban's friendly relations with Vladimir Putin. We went on to talk about the innovative character of Orban's post-neoliberal rule, which involves not merely erosion of democratic norms, but also the combining of certain elements of a neoliberal marketization agenda with efforts to promote national capital at the expense of foreign corporations and the radical centralization of state power. Today's show is brought to you by PTO supporters on Patreon and also by Verso Books, who have lots of great titles that may be of interest to PTO listeners. One you might like to check out is Scorched Earth, Beyond the Digital Age to a Post-Capitalist World by Jonathan Crary. In his new book, Crary presents the obvious but unsayable reality that our digital age is synonymous with the disastrous terminal stage of global capitalism and its financialization of social existence, ecocide and military terror. He dismantles the presumption that social media could be an instrument of radical change and contends that the networks and platforms of transnational corporations are intrinsically incompatible with a habitable earth or egalitarian post-capitalist forms of life. Andreas Malm describes his writing as the gift of profits. Scorched Earth, Beyond the Digital Age to a Post-Capitalist World by Jonathan Crary is out now from Verso Books, and one of their Verso Book Club April reading selections. And now to today's interview. Dorit Gever is Professor of Sociology and Social Anthropology and the Founding Dean of Undergraduate Studies at the Central European University in Vienna and the author of Conscription, Family and the Modern State. If you'd like to hear the extended version of today's interview, then please consider becoming a £3 supporter of the show on Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash poll theory other to sign up. So today we're largely going to be discussing an article that you wrote in the journal Theory, Culture and Society, but we're talking just a few days after Viktor Orban's thumping electoral victory, a fifth term in office for Orban and Fidesz and their self-styled project of illiberal democracy. Could you say something on the scale of Orban's victory and, and whether you were at all surprised given the Russian invasion of Ukraine and how that's brought Hungary's quite cordial ties with Russia to the fore, and also the government's handling of the COVID-19 pandemic, with Hungary experiencing one of the worst death tolls in the world. The elections took place on April 3rd, so it's, it's very fresh and everybody's still digesting the news. And indeed, it was a, a crushing defeat. Part of that is by design, 
structurally because after Viktor Orban's re-election in 2010, there were a series of constitutional changes made, which transformed the parliamentary election system so that whoever gains a majority of votes, um, if you pass the 50% threshold for parliamentary seats, that political party takes two thirds of the parliamentary seats. So two thirds of parliament are now held uh, by or will be held again by the Fidesz party. That's uh, Viktor Orban's party. Although it's not that they got uh, two thirds of the votes, but nonetheless, they win two thirds of parliamentary seats. And it is it is a deep disappointment. I think the statistic that has probably shocked many is that the opposition lost about 1 million votes compared to the 2018 elections. And I, I don't think that people saw that coming and the polls were off on that front. So even though the opposition for the first time since Orban was elected in 2010, the opposition for the first time ran on a united ticket. Uh, and this was really a, a kind of un, unhappy rainbow coalition, but they pretty much kept it together to u- unite around a center-right opposition candidate, Peter Markizai. And so people thought this had legs, and everyone knew that it would be an uphill battle. But nonetheless, they only took about 35% of the vote. The opposition candidate, Markizai, lost squarely. And then the other surprise was that an even more far-right party than the Fidesz party took 6% of the vote. And that was not anticipated that the Our Homeland Party would take 6% of the vote. If you look at the overall composition of Hungary's parliament, it is a, a solidly right-wing and even far-right parliament. And so that that has been shocking to many. And, and again, the, the polls didn't, didn't predict that, or to such an extent, uh, that the opposition party would would lose by such a margin. And the other surprise is is related to the the two topics that you raised, which is Orban's evident and well uh, documented track record of having good relations with Vladimir Putin and dependency on on Russian energy. And the opposition tried to shore up that topic as a wedge against Orban, as as a way of shoring up opposition against Orban and his Fidesz party. Uh, but what also surprised many is that that strategy looks to have failed, that the the message that Orban had conveyed of uh, Hungary needing to sustain its security and being in a kind of in-between place where on the one hand it's allied with NATO and the European Union, but on the other hand it extends a kind of olive branch to Russia and his absolutely unapologetic stance on that front actually proved to to be, it seems, a, a winning strategy, a, a winning rhetorical strategy. It's important to keep in mind that Hungary ranks by now very low in terms of media freedom. So it was always an uphill battle for the opposition parties to, to have any message reach a wide electorate effectively it doesn't always mean that the Fidesz party always has the most sophisticated campaign messaging, but they definitely have the machinery to extend it widely and deeply. And on the COVID front, indeed, Hungary actually, on, in certain senses, did very badly during the pandemic in terms of having a, an unusually high death rate. On the other hand, Orban was very effective in getting whatever vaccines he could get on his hands on and extending it 
across uh, the Hungarian population quite early. So on that front, he could claim that he was a, that he uh, effected a, a successful policy. And, uh, and again, in terms of the media reporting, the Hungarian media did not report extensively about the high mortality rate during the pandemic. So there was limited information. And then I think another strategy that they took, which worked very well, was that uh, Hungary was quite early on in an alternate, it was like an alternate universe going to Hungary or Budapest, because you'd walk in Budapest, nobody was wearing masks. It was as if the pandemic wasn't happening, and people could go to the shopping mall and um, go to restaurants and behave like uh, as if there was no COVID. And I think a, a bit related actually to to the article, which we'll soon discuss, access to consumption is very important for the success of the Orban regime. And there, there was no way that the pandemic was going to get in the way of freedom to consume in Hungary. So I think that also proved to be an effective campaign policy, let's say. As you say, the United Opposition includes a very diverse group of parties from the centre-left Socialist Party and, and the Greens to the far-right Jobbik Party. What kind of campaign and platform did Marquis I run on exactly? Well, it was very strongly about anti-corruption, because if there is one issue that even pro-Fides voters will criticise Orban and the Fides government about is, is corruption. Anybody who just you know, lives everyday life in Hungary knows that corruption is a major problem in Hungary at all levels of government. So it was a strong anti-corruption message. It was also pro-EU. It became also increasingly against dependency on Russia and dependency on Russian energy. So particularly after the Russian invasion of Ukraine, that that became an increasingly important campaign message. But the campaign had some difficulty in finding its home and delivering a a clear and consistent message from the beginning to the end. So I, I think one of the issues that dogged it was this kind of shifting around of messaging that it hadn't quite found sure footing and the way in which it shifted from starting with more with the theme of anti-corruption and ending with an anti-Putin message, it didn't manage to, to cohere into a very strong, clear message that could be delivered over the course of months. On the anti-Putin message, was that based on some sort of robust data in terms of where public opinion in in Hungary is at regarding the invasion of of Ukraine. Are the majority opposed to the invasion? Is is there quite a split? Where are people at on that issue, do you think? I think most are opposed to the invasion. I don't think that the sentiment is a strongly pro-Russian sentiment. And it's also important to remember that there are Hungarian minorities. There's actually quite significant Hungarian ethnic minorities in Ukraine whose livelihood and safety has been endangered. So there, I don't think that the situation is one of sympathy with the Russian position, but I think the difference is that there's an understanding that strategically Hungary does not wish to antagonize Putin and Russia, that there's a lot of admiration for Viktor Orban as a figure who really manages to simultaneously he speaks out of both sides of his mouth. So his cleverness, his Machiavellian character is admired for precisely that, that Europe 
needs him and he benefits and, and Hungary benefits from what the European Union can offer, both in terms of finances and just general membership, also NATO membership, and at the very same time to also sustain good ties with Russia and to sustain low energy prices, which for everyday consumers is a major, a major concern. So I think it's not, a, it's not an ideological embrace of Putin. It's an embrace of Orban and his ability to, to, to somehow maintain Hungary in a position of importance, despite its small size, and also its strategic utilitarian approach to greater powers. Obviously, in the, in the current context, the invasion of Ukraine seems to have had the effect of cohering the European project, deepening ties between the NATO powers and reasserting the role of, of NATO. But do you think that perhaps there is a certain strategic sense to voters choosing Orban, at least on this issue, putting to one side his, his domestic agenda? Because it's not obvious that we're not still tending towards an increase in multipolarity in the world going forward, even in spite of this current situation. Yes, I think there is a strategic sense and they see that and that's what he sold them. What Orban has done, I think, very cleverly, and by all accounts, he also relishes Hungary's involvement in international politics. There are some reports that he's actually very bored with domestic politics because he's dominated now for 12 years. And, you know, he sort of figured out the playbook and it's all working. I think it can practically work without him. So where he's put enormous efforts in recent years is more in the sphere of international politics. And he's very much a chess player who always plays a few moves ahead of everybody else. And so the ability for him to to have placed himself even potentially as a mediator between Russia and Europe is 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 very clever, of course. And what he promises Hungarians is peace. And he looks to be able to promise it in a viable way. So for Hungarian voters, there's absolutely strategic sense in voting for him. Hungary is in something of a standoff with the EU over EU funding and and corruption. And the EU is threatening to withhold some of the 24 billion euros that Hungary is due to receive up to 2027. Some analysts have speculated that given the need for some kind of united front against Russia, it's quite likely that some pretty meagre transparency reforms might be implemented that will then allow the EU to say, okay, something's been done and, and then we can release the funds. Do you agree with that analysis or do you, or do you think this, this standoff might go on for more time? I agree with that analysis. I think that Hungary and Poland, uh, for that matter, I mean, the situation the, is fluid and has clearly changed in the last month because these are countries that are seen much more as buffer countries and the appetite for a kind of family feud, I think, probably has declined. I think another important factor is the potential re-election of Emmanuel Macron and his apparent ambition to replace Angela Merkel as, as the de facto leader of the European Union. And I don't think that when you really look closely at Emmanuel Macron and Viktor Orban, the differences between them are not so large in terms of their ideological outlook. So I also don't see Macron really having the desire, the will to alienate Orban, because I think they share an outlook and a, even, and a view of the place of Europe globally and, and you know, certain elements of a kind of fortress Europe vis-a-vis immigration, but Europe as a 
a market space, a, a, a space of market society are all elements of, of a shared ideological outlook. So I think also Hungary's fate within the European project is related to the question of the French elections. Before we go into the detail of the paper that you wrote on Viktor Orban's form of governance, could you say something on Orban's history and background and how he went into politics in the late 1980s in the couple of years preceding the end of Communist Party rule when he was still a student? Yeah, sure. He was a law student in Budapest. He is not originally from Budapest. He's from a a town outside of Budapest. And it was in Budapest that he formed a circle of friends who are still very much together, actually, at the heart of the the whole Fidesz project. So this is a, a, a sort of a band of boys who very much made it to the top. Great and bunch of lads, I'm sure. Absolutely. <laughs> and then what's what's interesting with, with Orban is he then had a, a scholarship that was funded by one of George Soros' foundations at the time. So he spent a, a very short period of time at Oxford, and then news came of not only the fall of, well, it was you know, news came of the end of the Cold War, what we can now call the end of the Cold War, and also the first elections, post-socialist elections. So he quickly returned to Hungary and already then made a name for himself because he he made a speech in, in the most central square very large, beautiful, monumental square in Budapest called Hero Square, where he made an anti-Soviet speech, which at the time was interpreted to mean that he's a dissident. But I think we we have to put it into perspective that meant that he was anti-Soviet. It didn't mean that he was a true believer in liberal democracy. And that made him a national name. And he very quickly founded with his band of boys, the Liberal Party, the Fidesz Party. And this party at first looked maybe closer to what the UK Liberal Party stands for, but they struggled electorally because one element of the Hungarian electorate that was evident right from the first elections following the end of the socialist regime is that the Hungarian electorate is quite conservative. So it turned out that being a liberal only had so much traction within Hungarian politics. And as the very charismatic and very strong leader that he is, he moved the party further and further rightwards. And this started resulting finally in success. So he was, uh, he had his first term as uh, the prime minister of Hungary in the 1990s and then lost those elections. I mean, he lost re-election, which apparently was a, a major lesson for him in terms of his vow, apparently, to never lose elections again. And it was in those intervening years that the Fidesz party really took a rightward turn. And he was then re-elected in 2010. The party that had been in power until then was the Socialist Party, but we shouldn't get confused because it's not... The Socialist Party of the Socialist era it was basically at the time a, th- a third way leftist party. And what was important was that he campaigned very clearly on a campaign of vowing that Hungary would no longer be beholden to the international institutions that had indebted Hungary, specifically the, the IMF, because Hungary, like many countries in the 1990s and 2000s, and especially those that had gone through the post-socialist transition, had had to take loans from international lending institutions, neoliberal lending institutions, which indebted them and, and of course, 
changed and, and forced privatization of, of public sector utility companies and so on and so forth. So he vowed to restore Hungarian dignity by reducing its dependence on foreign credit and to basically restore Hungarian sovereignty. And I don't think that people quite understood how seriously ambitious he was about transforming Hungary and changing the very nature of the Hungarian political system. And that then proceeded to unfold bit by bit. Then he was reelected in 2014 and then 2018. And now he was just reelected again in April 2022. Over the last decade, author, filmmaker and activist Astra Taylor has helped to shift the national conversation on topics including technology, inequality, indebtedness and democracy. Taylor's new book is Remake the World, Essays, Reflections, Rebellions. The essays collected in the book reveal the range and depth of her thinking, with Taylor addressing some of the most pressing social problems of our day. As Kianga Yamata Taylor puts it, rooted in rigorous study, deep questioning and powerful and persuasive argument, Astra Taylor's latest is further evidence that she is the people's public intellectual. You can find Remake the World at haymarketbooks.org, where readers in the UK and the US can receive free shipping on orders over £20 or £25 respectively. Going on to the paper then, so Orban is often bracketed with other prominent authoritarian leaders and politicians. But in the paper, you argue that more than simply eroding democratic norms, Orban has been very innovative in his establishment of what you describe as a new type of post-neoliberal regime, merging authoritarianism, racist and patriarchal nationalism, parentalism, and partial neoliberalisation. Can you explain what you think is particularly novel in Orban's approach and and where he diverges from some of those other populist right-wing leaders? So what I try to do in this paper is I try to set out the characteristics of this regime, which I found lacking in terms of very quick comparisons that were being used, like calling the regime authoritarian or fascist or populist. And it didn't reflect to me the depth of what I was seeing had transformed in Hungary. I should add that I had lived eight years in Hungary because I'm a professor at Central European University, which was based in Budapest and then was kicked out. And that's why I'm joining you from Vienna. But some of these changes I had seen unfolding in front of my very eyes, I arrived in Budapest in September 2011. So he had been in power for about a year and just saw enormous transformations over the eight years when we were living there. What I noticed was ultimately that there was a a set of features that once would have seemed contradictory if we thought of, let's call it classical neoliberalism. So on the one hand, extensive marketization of society, decrease, for example, in labor protections, radical reduction in redistribution of wealth across social class a hollowing out of the welfare system and minimal investment in public infrastructure, in the healthcare system and in education. So all of that looks to be like features that we know well from high neoliberalism. But on the other hand, the way in which all those changes had been implemented didn't look to me like classical high neoliberalism in the sense that some of the policies are also just very different 
And so, yes, there has been a decline in the welfare state. And yet, on the other hand, what there has been is an increase in a whole system of loans that the state gives. So loans and then potential loan forgiveness of certain conditions are met. So in fact, elements of state financialization. And crucially, also a very empowered central state. So one of the features identified by, for example, Bob Jessup, um, British Marxist, whom I rely on very heavily for this paper and his really excellent work on the neoliberal state, what Jessup had identified at the time was what he calls the hollowing out of the state. So the state gets emptied of any meaningful power and then the devolution of central state power to private actors or to regional actors who compete or who competed for investment, for example. And so this tendency to to push towards the, the race to the bottom, for example, for labor costs. And it took me a while to understand this because I exactly because I think it was it's quite novel, is that actually what Orban was doing was privatization and emptying out the welfare state and reducing redistribution across social class but not hollowing out the state. In in fact, very much the opposite. The state was and has been empowered. It's the central locus of power. The state as a central actor in the management of financialization and capitalist competition. And so this configuration is then what I suggest is also something that we need to see as post-neoliberal because it contains elements of high neoliberalism, but it's moved into something post, it's moved into something new. One of the issues you talk about is the question of nationalisation. So Orban has carried out nationalisation in certain sectors of the Hungarian economy, which obviously seems very contrary to a neoliberal agenda. But you emphasise that this is not the kind of nationalisation that we would see in a sort of classically social democratic or socialist project. So can you talk about the particular form of nationalisation that's been carried out? So central to this state control is the central state control of contracts. So it's a kind of nationalisation, which is not, as you say, the classic old sense in which we in which we use it, where the state takes over certain sectors. But rather the Fidesz party, so the party that controls the state, and uh, Viktor Orban specifically, are directly involved in who gets to buy and control certain assets and significant chunks of certain sectors, like the energy sector, for example, or the media sector is an even better example of it. Because what they figured out, which is an absolutely brilliant strategy, is that since the state and the ruling party has immense control in who gets to purchase certain companies and control certain sectors, it's political dependence uh, and the political loyalists who benefit from these contracts. So that's exactly what happened in the media sector. The parliament passed a series of obscure laws. This is what they do in, in all the sectors they seek to dominate. They pass obscure laws that on the surface look to be just very technical. And it forces out companies that otherwise occupy that sector. So that was the case, for example, in media, where there was more of a foreign media presence in radio and print and television in Hungary, these obscure laws were passed. So they exit 
the market and in the vacuum that remains, the fetus loyalists pick up the pieces, they buy the remnants, they invest in the remnants of, of this sector that has been destroyed by the obscure parliamentary law. And private ownership, which is deeply loyal and very much dependent on the ruling party, fills in that sector. And so that's why Viktor Orban says when he is accused, for example, when the regime is accused of having very limited media freedom, he says, well, show me the law that I passed that limits the media to say, from saying whatever they want. And you'll never find that law because they don't exist, because they don't have to exist, because the owners of the, all the major media conglomerates now in Hungary are Fidesz loyalists. And they know that if they want to make their money, they have to toe the government line. And another aspect of this project is the attack on local government and the attempt to establish greater power over particularly the capital city Budapest. Can you talk about that and, and what explains the particular hostility to municipal government? Yes, sure. I mean, Budapest in itself is even more contested than at other levels. But what is also significant is that Budapest remains one bastion of opposition to the fetus government. And in fact, the recent elections prove that to be the case again. The support for fetus is considerably lower in Budapest. And the mayor, Karachoni, Gergely Karachoni, who's uh, originally uh, from the Green Party, is a very effective political leader and has really structured Budapest to be a kind of zone of opposition to the national government. And this plays out in the spatial politics and the zoning politics of the city, because what the government has sought to do is to transform as much of Budapest as possible in terms of the even just the um, the heritage, the architectural heritage, for example, of the city, to declare those as belonging to the national government rather than to the city. So there's all kinds of urban projects, urban development projects. For example, there's a, I mean, what's known, what's perhaps best known in Budapest is a, there's a very beautiful park in the city center, which is incidentally very close to the uh, Hero Square, where where Orban gave his his great um, student speech in the 1980s, that the the national government wants to take over to develop into government buildings, and this is a a point of of great well, it's very much contested. It's a point of conflict amongst the citizens of Budapest and also and the government. But there are other examples of also establishing, for example, in smaller cities, almost like a, a mini special economic zone which is meant to promote investment on the part of multinational corporations so that there would be international investment to build factories, for example, um, yeah, in these I mean, zones. You, you mentioned that Samsung has invested in such a zone. Exactly, precisely. And on this front, Hungary does very well. Hungary is very good at, at, at uh, attracting investment because it, it creates these mini zones. There's the lowest corporate tax in Europe, but the local municipalities don't benefit from the revenue. There's very little local benefit in terms of the local city governance that they get from these um, special investment projects. And of course, it provides employment. So that's something that at least local citizens somewhat benefit from. But there is a reduction also of, of the power of municipalities, and especially by having control over budgets. For example, re reducing the budgetary autonomy that cities have, that local municipalities have. So this is part and parcel of this centralization of power 
of the central state becoming the arbiter of everything across Hungary and reducing the power, the local autonomy of municipalities, which is exactly then the opposite of what Bob Jessup's described as having happened in the 1990s and the 2000s. When it comes to the condition of workers in in Hungary, you describe how Hungary has experienced an, an exodus of workers to other parts of the EU in response to the government's efforts to create this very highly flexibilized labor market that's implemented in order to try and attract those outside investors that you describe. And in response to that exodus, the so-called slave law was passed in 2018, which allows employers to demand 250 to 400 hours of overtime work annually from employees with a delay of wage compensation for as long as three years after overtime work is completed. Can you talk about that law and also whether it might not potentially exacerbate the problem by further encouraging workers to seek work elsewhere in the EU since whatever else the government can do, they can't do anything, at least not anytime soon, about Hungary's membership of the Schengen Free Movement Zone? The so-called slave law, which in typical FIDA style was passed in minutes um, in parliament, is precisely a law that basically forces workers to, to work overtime in a way that benefits, of course, the employers by having this bizarre period, this gap between their work and at the point at which they need to be paid. So generally, the situation for Hungarian workers has been a dramatic decline in labor protection. I mean, just recently, for example, teachers went on strike also because of very, very poor work conditions, very low wages, wages that simply do not keep up with the cost of living. That is especially the case in Budapest, where the cost of living is, has become significantly more expensive. But it's also true outside of Budapest. And one major issue in Hungary now is absolutely inflation. So these problems are only, are only exacerbated. And at the very same time, as you noted, there is a significant amount of outmigration of labor from Hungary. In fact, there is a reading where the Russian invasion of of Ukraine is good news for Hungary because Hungary was already turning to Ukrainian laborers to fill labor gaps, particularly in the in the construction sector. So it is true that Hungary, you know, Hungary right now, Orban, the Orban regime has been actually fairly welcoming of Ukrainian refugees. And it's, of course, in very stark contrast to what happened in 2015 with the Syrian refugee crisis. But it's workers, some of whom were already being tapped to fill labor shortages. But this is an ongoing tension and contradiction within the Fidesz regime, because on the one hand, the extreme flexibilization of labor and very low wages and quite minimal uh, social supports and social security being provided to workers at the same time investing or or trying to attract and successfully attracting foreign investment where the draw is low corporate tax, but also low wages and and high labor flexibility is a tension that the Orban regime hasn't managed to fully sort out. But the Ukrainian refugee crisis, I think right now, gives it a quick fix. In the paper, you describe how the Socialist Party during its period of rule in the 90s and early 2000s had implemented this kind of classically neoliberal workfare regime, and that in some respects, Orban doubled down on those policies. But at the same time, you describe how the working poor have been, as you put it, somewhat discursively and materially rewarded in comparison to the so-called idle poor, who are implicitly Roma. 
can you talk about that process and the way in which certain sections of the Hungarian population are treated as being outside of the national community? Well, I think I think the most shocking policy and even constitutional reform, that's how far it went, which I talk about in this paper, was a constitutional reform that made homelessness a crime against the constitution. I mean, that is literally constitutionalizing. It's the making of a neoliberal constitution because the degree of penality that is applied to the poor is extraordinary. And you can see this also just in terms of everyday urban policing. Tourists love to come to Budapest. It's, it's uh, very popular and it's very popular amongst UK travelers. There's often a lot of tourism from the UK. Yeah, my, uh, my sister spent some of her honeymoon in, in Budapest, actually. Yeah. And I'm sure she loved it because it is yeah, a beautiful a city. Yeah. Absolutely beautiful city <laughs> and very charming city. And uh, and the city has, you walk around and, and in the city core, I mean, there's very active policing of, of homeless and the poor who are not allowed to be in public. And when you go to the edges of the city, you start seeing the poor and the homeless, but they're they're policed out of the city center. And just the overall condition of unemployment insurance is very poor. There is a, a kind of workfare policy, but the wages paid are actually below even the minimum wage, which is already very low. The poor are get very little support now from the Hungarian welfare state. And whatever support they get, it's barely enough to reproduce their very being let alone, for example, support children. I mean, childhood poverty is actually quite high in Hungary relative to Europe, and even relative to, to its post-socialist neighbors. So this whole so-called pro-family policy that is supposed to be exemplified by the Orban regime, one really must question it when there isn't even a commitment to alleviating child poverty. And then the Roma, are who are always in Hungarian policy, the, the most marginalized are particularly discriminated against. I mean, they, they continue to be discriminated against and de facto become ineligible for some of the workfare policies and certainly some of the loan policies. So I had mentioned earlier that, that one of the features of the reconfiguration of the Hungarian welfare state is not just a system of transfers, of just cash transfers or, or redistribution but eligibility for loans. And statistically, Roma proved to be often mostly ineligible for this system of loans because you have to have already a certain level of wealth and employment to even qualify for them. So they just are simply disqualified. So this is, I, I mean, I call it a form of neoliberal populism because the penalization and criminalization of the poor is also something we, we know well by now for some 30 years. But to go even beyond that and to enshrine it in the, in the Constitution, I think goes even further. And that's why, that's why I call it a form of neoliberal populism, where even the very definition of the people is set up where the people do not incorporate the poor, the poorest and the most vulnerable. You've been listening to Politics Theory Other, a podcast from Tribune magazine. If you would like to hear the extended version of today's interview and of other PTO shows, then please consider becoming a supporter. You can get access to extended versions of PTO episodes from £3 a month. And if you're outside the UK, you can also now support the show in US dollars or euros. Go to patreon.com forward slash poll theory other to sign up. Thanks for listening.